House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Back into the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle, KCAA 106.5 FM Los Angeles. I'm Al Warren. And of course today it's a day of conspiracy, so our host is Dr. Joe Usinski from Miami. How are you doing, Joe? Very good, Al. Very happy to be here again with you every Wednesday. I am uh, very excited for today's guest. We're going to be talking about the psychology of why people believe in conspiracy theories. Um, so it's going to be a very good discussion. And it couldn't come in a better time because right now we have conspiracy theories popping up and then getting debunked and then people saying that those conspiracy theories are part of a conspiracy themselves. So uh, we want to figure out why people believe in all of this stuff, yeah, even when there's not good evidence for it. This this might help me because I, that's I'm 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 like I said I'm trying all types of ways to not upset people that I discuss conspiracy theories with. I'm, 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 I've tried the, uh, you know, you're a complete idiot. What are you, stupid? <laughs> and I've tried the, uh, um, the other theory, like uh, Dr. Shermer said, a novella said, hey, listen, you know, um, show them how they can find the correct evidence. Put your arm around them. I've tried, I'm trying all these techniques, and... I, I I'm not being successful. I'm so there's something with the psychology that I'm not understanding. To uh, to take premises or antidote, living in simple day-to-day life is fine, but not when it comes to these sort of incredible conspiracies. And I'm uh, I'm I'm about ready to go to Mars and live with Hitler. <laughs> And, and you know, this book, of course, I caught, it's funny, because both of you and I look for great guests to have on that have some logic, and we both found this guy. Um, the book, Suspicious Minds, uh, and it's by uh, Rob, and that's uh, Brotherton. And um, that, that caught my eye, and I sent it to you, and I sent out an, an invite, and then you knew him, and... Here we are. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Well, Rob, it's all the pressure's all on you now. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're yeah. here, and uh, we're waiting for an answer because uh, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go out and, um, and 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 shoot someone. I mean, I just I, I can't take it anymore. Every day, and I get all these things like you know this. The rush, you know, limbo. Now he's saying the whole New Zealand thing was fake. It was all crisis actors, and then the plane that crashed didn't really crash. They're in somewhere in Nairobi, and and uh, it just, uh, you know, and now the chem chemtrails are coming back again, and then and I'm ready to pull. I pulled my hair out in the 90s, so I have no more <laughs> hair to pull out. All right. Well, let's see if I can solve this today. Okay. Here we go. Here is Here we go. Well, so to your point about <laughs> evidence, <laughs> I think a place to start is uh, obviously I'm an academic psychologist, so I think about psychology. Now, when it comes to conspiracy theories, evidence matters. People don't believe things for the most part that they don't think is true. And people do base their beliefs on evidence, but evidence is not everything. I think there are psychological factors here at play as well, ways that our minds work, ways that we think about the world and assumptions that we make that form a foundation for conspiracy theories. And so people can end up believing conspiracy theories despite the evidence or, you know, most especially when the evidence is mixed or when it's inconclusive. The world is complicated. We're all trying to understand it. Some people understand it in terms of conspiracies. So, I guess one thing that's very hard for people to believe is that their beliefs might be based on something other than capital T truth. 
And they don't understand that beliefs can come from a lot of places and not just from evidence or facts or, or what is true. Um, you know, it, 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 so how do you convince people that, hey, we know you believe this and we know you think it's true, but there are other processes going on in your mind that are sort of driving your belief? Yeah, it's a difficult thing because our mind is not made to understand this, to understand that reality is extremely complex and often there's more than one way of understanding any given set of facts. There's a, a basic aspect of psychology is called naive realism, which is the idea that we all see the world through our eyes, through our own consciousness, our beliefs, our understanding of the world is shaped by the things going on in our mind. But to us, on the, on the end of that, our perception of reality, we just assume that it is truth, capital T truth, like you said. We assume that we see reality as it is. And all the psychological processes, the biases, the shortcuts, the assumptions, they're, they happen behind the scenes. They're hidden from us. And so it's hard to persuade people that what they believe might be shaped by those forces and not purely by evidence alone. So what are some of these biases that, that, that drive people to adopt one conclusion or another, um, even though the evidence might not really point in that direction? So in the book, I talk about four. And um, so one that I think is kind of the most, it's the easiest to understand, the easiest to catch yourself sometimes thinking in this way, is called the intentionality bias. And so this is a bias that we have towards assuming that anything kind of ambiguous that happens in the world, it probably happened because of somebody's intention, because somebody planned it, it was designed, it was meant to happen. And so it's easy to see how this would uh, cause people to believe in conspiracy theories or to be receptive to conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are all about intentions and motives. They're all about making a guess about what the real motive behind the scenes is or what the real intention of the people who actually pulled this thing off was and so this is a psychological bias and it's easy to see in these kind of extreme cases when it leads somebody to believe in a conspiracy theory that looks so outlandish to everybody else but it's something that we all do pretty much all the time and probably for very good reason so an evolutionary kind of perspective on it is that suppose you were a cave person millennia ago. You're out for a stroll one day at the bottom of some beautiful cliffs and a rock falls and almost kills you, lands next to you. What are you going to do? What do you assume? That just the rock fell just because of sedimentary erosion or because of a breeze or something? It was just an accident? Well, maybe, but that's not very useful to you because what can you do about that? If it was just chance, it doesn't help you predict what's going to happen in the future, where the next rock is going to come from. But if you assume that somebody did it, somebody was up there at the top of the cliff giving the rock a push, somebody was out to get you, well, now you can do something about that. You can keep your eye on you know, your enemies, the people who seem to have it in for you. And you can avoid those cliffs in the future. You can avoid those people who you think might have planned that. So in that sense, it's a useful bias, potentially. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be correct. Maybe it was just a breeze. Maybe it is just chance. Maybe there wasn't somebody behind it. But it's a, it's a useful assumption, potentially. So do you see this a lot with explanations of the economy? Because that's where I seem to see it quite a bit, where you say, why do we have inequality? Why do we have... Um, some people getting very rich and other people getting poor. And then the explanation I hear a lot is, well, the 1% rigged it that way. It was all made to be just like this, to stick it to you. It's all been rigged on purpose. And um, that seems to have, you know, ascribing an intention to something that is very complex, like a national economy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an excellent example. Again, it's a kind of, conspiracy suspicion that somebody is controlling things and that they have some kind of nefarious purpose. And again, it's it's more general than that. I think there's there's research on people's perceptions about who controls things in politics. You know, the influence that the president has over the economy versus um, you know, the the House, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the the banks. 
And people tend to overestimate the influence of certain actors and to underestimate the influence of other actors, mostly when they tend to be less concrete, more abstract forces. Mm. People tend to overestimate particularly the influence of the president, you know, perhaps because that's just an individual surrounded by an administration, but identifiable people where it's kind of relatively easy to point your finger and say, I think these people are controlling things. Okay, so that's intentionality bias. What's uh, what would be the next one that that would drive people to to sort of uh, misunderstand the evidence they've gathered? So another bias that I discuss in the book, and uh, a more low-level bias, again something that our brain is doing all the time, and we couldn't survive without, is called pattern-seeking, patternicity, the bias towards connecting the dots, thinking things are connected as opposed to just being coincidence unrelated dots. And so again, in the context of conspiracy, this is easy to see. Conspiracy theories are literally about connecting the dots. And you can make nice conspiracy boards with push pins on a cork board and pieces of string connecting all the players in the conspiracy. But again, this is something that we're all doing pretty much all the time. Whether it's trying to figure out, you know, you're in a new city, how do you cross the road here? Where is the button to at the pedestrian crossing, how long do you have to wait for the cars to stop, where are the cars coming from? You know, you have to see patterns, everything, in order to understand the world, in order to be able to act on it. And so one conspiracy theory that's been talked about a lot lately, and I don't know how big it is, because um, the polling I've done shows that there's not that many people that like it, but the QAnon conspiracy theory gets a lot of media interest and with those the tweets coming from the believers it seems like there's a lot of patternicity taking place there they're seeking out patterns between what the president says what this Q anonymous Q poster says on these anonymous chat boards different things that happen in the media and they're always searching for that connection and they sort of drive themselves to, to, to go out and find more connections and connect more dots I mean, does it does it seem like the fringier you might get, the more uh, you know people are going to have to find those patterns to hold on to the belief? Well, yeah, I think QAnon is a pretty pure example of this. You know, there's these cryptic posts online, which on their surface don't really seem to tell you much, but if you take them as these obscure clues to something that's really going on you can go and look for the evidence. And once you're looking for something, especially when it's so kind of vague, and it could be pretty much anything, well, you can find evidence of it. I think that's one of the the fun things about this QAnon conspiracy theory, is that it, it engages its audience so directly. It's not telling people exactly what to believe. It's providing some strange, ambiguous clues and getting people to go out and do the work themselves. The people who are willing to do that, they're probably going to end up more invested as a result because they're the ones putting the pattern together. Yeah, it's wild, too, as you watch this because they have concocted this entire new world that exists only in their mind where JFK Jr. is still alive and is working for Trump and then Hillary Clinton is a satanic sex pedophile um, who's running a, a trafficking ring. So there's all sorts of things, but they seem to be convinced that they have really good evidence and that they've put all these things together into a, a tight package. And sometimes you read the tweets from the from the members, and it it, it doesn't. I don't have confidence that they're ever going to find their way out. Is it, do you think there's a way out that can people break out of the patterns they've created for themselves? Well, this leads me to another bias that I discuss in the book, which is confirmation <laughs> bias. Uh, and this will be familiar, I'm sure, to many people. This is basically the idea that once you have something in your mind, once you have a hunch or a belief about something, then you go looking for evidence, typically that is going to support it, and evidence that seems to go against it you're going to scrutinize much more carefully and you're more likely to find flaws with it and dismiss it. And so I think, again, that applies in the context of QAnon. It's people getting people engaged, getting people actively looking for these patterns. And when they find one, you know, what could be more convincing than receiving some weird clue and then seemingly finding evidence of it?
But I do want to say with QAnon, I think it's been massively overplayed by the media. I think this is a relatively niche conspiracy theory. You know, we don't have really good quality data on exactly how many people believe it, because measuring belief is a hard thing, especially in this context where, you know, it's so wrapped up in, like, trolling culture and people, you know, expressing things ironically or sarcastically or just trolling other people. It's hard to know who actually believes it. There is some data on, you know, people's feelings towards it, how receptive they are, and most people are not receptive of the QAnon theories, as far as we can tell. And research online shows that on the forums of subreddits and, and things where people are talking about it, it's a very small number of people making most of the noise about it. And again, for those people, we don't know if they believe it or if they're just engaging with it as a form of entertainment. Well, it's sort of funny, right? Because the people who are into it say that they are a huge army and that there's tons of them and they're taking over the country. <laughs> and then on the other hand, um, you have the media, the media sort of pushing this as if it's really huge. And I think they give it a lot more credence than it deserves. Um, I don't know if you remember, but last August, there was just a handful of people that went to a Trump rally um, with Q shirts on, and then there had to be a hundred different articles written in all the top newspapers um, mm -hmm. ab about the Q thing, and it seemed they seemed to give it a lot more um, light than 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 it probably should have gotten. Yeah, and there were articles last week, I think, some supporters with QAnon signs they showed up at another Trump rally, and even in the UK there was a story about somebody with a Q sign at one of the Brexit rallies, and yeah, these. The articles, especially last August when there was this proliferation over a few days, it must have been a slow news week, I think. They give the impression that this is something big and serious. And that's exactly the impression that the people who really believe it and are invested in it would like to be out there. <laughs> but I think it's, I, I don't know how aligned with reality it is. So when confirmation bias, just to get back to that, so that's a really powerful drug that people can get on. Um, so just so people can understand it, so imagine you don't like your brother-in-law, you know, and every time you see him at the family get-together, you're going to focus on what you observe on all the bad things that he does, and anything good he does that you might like, you're just going to dismiss. So, and this is something that people do all the time, they focus on things that confirm what they already believe. I mean, is there a way to break out of that? I mean, it just sounds like, like once you're in that that bubble it's really hard to uh, smash your way out of it yeah it's certainly a difficult thing and again this is a psychological bias it seems to be very robust there's a lot of evidence looking into this and presumably if a psychological bias like that exists there was a reason for it and there's a lot of argument that suggests the confirmation bias it's not inherently irrational or it's not inherently a bad thing necessarily if you believe something if you have something in mind that you think is true presumably you believe it for good reason you know your beliefs they're not arbitrary you've decided that this is a reasonable thing for some reason whatever you think your reasons are and so when you encounter evidence that challenges it well why should you trust that evidence especially if it's you know something you read online you don't know the providence of it you don't know the motives of the person who wrote it why should new evidence necessarily be more trustworthy than your, what seemed to you, reasonable prior beliefs? And, you know, if we went around changing our mind about everything in response to every piece of new evidence, well, you know, life would be chaos. You wouldn't be able to yeah. function in the world. And so, again, this is a psychological bias that's about simplifying the world. It's not always going to produce correct beliefs, but it's not necessarily... Uh, in and of itself, an irrational strategy. So when should we believe something? I guess is a question I want to pose. Um, so let me bring up an example. So let's say you believe in your particular religion. But it's not because you went out and found evidence for it. It's because you were brought up into that belief system by your family and by your, your peers and neighbors and whatnot. Um, how do you break out of that? And, and, and how should you interpret evidence that, that doesn't support your religious views? 
Well, it's worth saying that evidence works. Evidence does persuade people, at least to some extent. You know, it's possible to, to overplay the confirmation bias and to say that everybody's immune from evidence or immune from correction. That's not the case. So, um, I don't know how this applies to the context of religion, but with conspiracy theories, if you provide people evidence that a specific claim that they think or that they have been told is true is in fact mistaken, then that does nudge people's beliefs mm. for the most part. So evidence can work. But again, from a psychological perspective, evidence is not everything. And yeah. I think it's you have to think about other motivations as well. There are motivations other than just being right about everything, you know. Particularly we have social motivations to want to fit in, to want to not alienate the people around us, especially the people we're closest to. And so both in the context of conspiracy theories and religion, I think this plays a strong role that's often overlooked, is that it's not all about being right about the world, necessarily. It's not all about the evidence and the facts. Yeah, so the reason I went to religion was because that's something that you, you, you sort of brought up into early on, um, and it's part of a cultural thing. So people will get like religious beliefs and cultural and na national beliefs and whatnot, and they won't always be based on lots of evidence, but they're sort of implanted into a person um, during their formative years. And then the question is, if you run into those, it seems that they're really hard to negotiate with. You know, go try to convince somebody, you know, that their country isn't the best country or um, that their religion might not be the only one or the right one or whatnot. Um, it, it, and it's tough. And those beliefs don't seem to be evidence-based. And I think it's exactly what you're saying, that they seem to be more social-based. But then the people seem to either not accept evidence that goes against what they believe or they... Um, they, they're able to twist things in, into always supporting what they've always believed all along. Yeah, and with beliefs like that, when you've been raised into something, and you know that's to some extent at least the only reality that you know for a long time, it can be hard to even see those as as beliefs or as something that different mm -hmm. people could differ on. You know, and it's not until you're confronted with that, but by meeting people from a different religion or people who have different beliefs, it's not until you're confronted like that that it becomes even evident on the surface of it that that is something that people could have different perspectives on. Okay, good. So we got intentionality bias, patternicity, confirmation bias, and, and what's the number four psychological mechanism? So number four I called proportion distortion. And uh, that was my wife's idea, incidentally, that title, I feel like I should point out, she was a dietitian, and so she knew about something called portion distortion, where people don't realize how much they're eating, and she suggested proportion distortion, which I thought was lovely. Basically, it's the idea that when something seems proportionally big in the world, something seems uh, momentous, significant, important, then we want it to have a momentous, significant, important explanation. Basically, big events, we assume, have big causes. It's psychologically uh, unintuitive to think that something big could have a very small cause. And so in the context of conspiracy theories, the most prevalent, successful conspiracy theories, they tend to, to concern these huge events, like the JFK assassination, the 9-11 attacks, these momentous, profound events which oftentimes the official story is relatively unsatisfying uh, with the JFK assassination to say that this one lone gunman, no, somebody who nobody basically had heard of before, did this thing and changed the course of history, that is psychologically unsatisfying. And so then some people come up with a big conspiracy theory saying actually the whole thing was planned and orchestrated by these government agencies or some secretive group, and that the proportion fits. It's more psychologically uh, intuitive that that would be the case. So we have all these biases that... Now, does everyone have these biases? Yeah, everybody has these to some extent. It's almost like a personality trait. Some people are very high, some people are very low, most people are somewhere in the middle. 
Now, would you say that the people who, and, and I don't want to use too wrong of a word here, like suffer from these, um, but people who have these in high proportion, um, is there a reasoning problem that they have? Are they not able to um, deal with evidence and come to rational conclusions if they, you know, have these biases too strong? Well, certainly, if somebody was at the extreme high end on all these biases, that would probably be a problem for them. If they assumed that absolutely everything that happened in the world was intentional and that all the dots are connected and and that every big event has a huge cause, it would probably be a problem. But I think people, I have some colleagues. I have some colleagues like that. <laughs> there are probably some people, but for the most part. These biases, they're not that strong. They, they're running constantly in the background, telling us that maybe that intended and not accidental. Maybe the dots are connected. But most of the time, if we're thinking about things, questioning our first assumptions, then we can override these biases. There's evidence that it's when our cognitive resources are depleted. So just when we're distracted, when we're thinking about something else, or just when we don't have the motivation to question our gut instincts. That's when people tend to give in to the biases more. And again, it's not necessarily the case that these biases are always going to produce a wrong answer. You know, I think it's worth noting that didn't have any of these biases or who never gave in to them, always overrode the biases, always said everything's accidental, nothing's intended. That would be equally misguided. Hmm. Because it is the case that occasionally, you know, things are intentional. Um, you do have bad groups working against us from time to time. Um, but it seems to me like there is a group of people who sort of always go to that place, no matter what it is. It must have been a conspiracy um, that, that, that's driven it, and it can't be anything else. Um what do you think drives those people? Um, is it just those biases, or, or are there other things in operation that sort of just just makes them see conspiracies lurking behind every corner? Uh, I'm sure there are many other factors. I mean, again, I'm an academic psychologist, so I focus on psychology. There are a lot of other pieces of the puzzle, like the political context, historical context, you know, the role of the media, like with shaping perceptions about the QAnon conspiracy. Um, but sticking with psychology, which is what I know, the earliest studies and some of the most reliable findings are that somebody who believes one conspiracy theory tends to believe many others. This is not invariably the case. There may be some special classes of conspiracy theory that kind of sit by themselves, but for the most part, somebody who believes that JFK was killed by the government, not a lone gunman, they're more likely to say they think 9-11 was an inside job, the moon landing was faked. They're more likely to be receptive to a whole host of seemingly unrelated conspiracy theories. And so part of that is because we all have these biases running in the background, providing a foundation for conspiracy thinking. And then there are other psychological factors, like people's personality. And so fairly self-evident people who are more paranoid in a kind of mild way are more receptive to conspiracy theories. People, they more often say that their colleagues are talking about them behind their back, that somebody gave them a weird glance on the street, things like that. These mild, everyday, paranoid suspicions, people have those more, more receptive to conspiracy theories, presumably because conspiracy theories paint a fairly paranoid view. Another personality, a study that I did, that people who are more prone to them are more receptive to conspiracy theories. The reason being, it seems that when you're more prone to boredom, you're a little bit more prone to paranoia. You have more self-referential, mildly paranoid thoughts, and then that makes you more receptive to conspiracy theory. And so, if someone's really, so if someone's sitting around and they're just really bored, and you know they, they don't have anything to do, and they have sort of paranoia running in the background, it's easy for them to, to sort of get into this and see, you know, active conspiracies going on? For sure. And you know, what could assuage your boredom better conspiracy theories? They're exciting. <laughs> I mean, a pretty exciting view of the world. 
I mean, it reminds me a lot of QAnon because you have a lot of people that seem to have some time on their hands and they're, they've, they've, you know, really busied themselves um, by looking for all these, uh, all these clues. Um, so let me ask you, Rob, when you were writing the book, uh, Suspicious Minds, what, what were some of the conspiracy theories that you came across that sort of jumped out at you um, that, that, that said, hey, that, that seems really wacky and out of the norm? What are the ones that, that sort of piqued your interest? Uh, well, I spent a lot of time thinking about David Icke, who, for people unfamiliar, David Icke is a British conspiracy theorist, and he is the person most responsible for popularizing the idea of the lizard people, the idea that there's these shape-shifting, interdimensional lizards who have been interbreeding with humans for centuries, and so the, all the Bush family and the British monarchy and all these people there, like half-lizard, essentially, they're controlling humanity. You know, I spent a lot of time with that, partly just because I went to one of David Icke's talks, and he gives these talks that literally last all day, like 11 hours. And um, he runs through the whole thing. And I find it fascinating how he structures those talks. You know, how are you going to structure an 11-hour talk? Well, he starts with sort of the basic conspiracy theories that everyone can agree on. Right, like you shouldn't trust the media, scientists, politicians. 9/11 was an inside job. All the kind of basic conspiracy theories. And then at the end of part one, like after three hours, he says, "But that is just the outer rim of the rabbit hole." And now I'm going to tell you how this really works. And that's when he gets into the lizards. And then in Act Three, like towards the end of the day, he offers some reassurance. Basically, so he says that even though all this terrible stuff is going on, there's these lizards and they're trying to kill us all and everything, we can overcome it if we just realize that we're all one consciousness, we're all interconnected, we just love one another, then love will triumph these evil alien lizards. And he does a little dance on stage. I've, I've heard, I've seen on YouTube at least, that he'll, he'll invite the audience sometimes up to come dance with him on the stage. Did you go and dance uh, with him uh, at the end I of the show? Do, I didn't dance. I was there. So I thought I shouldn't be going on stage. Okay. <laughs> but he'll dance a bit, he'll chant a little bit. You know, and I thought that was quite revealing. Because in Act 1, when I was talking about not having all this kind of typical stuff, he groans of applause. Anytime he said, don't trust the government, don't trust scientists, it seemed like everybody was pretty much on board with that. This was an audience uh, in front of something like three or four thousand people, by the way. This was a big event. So, so how, most many, of those people, how many people were there, and how many do you think might have figured out who you were and what you were up to? Uh, I was not known at all. <laughs> this was before... I was a, a famous, internationally known author of Suspicious Minds. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was incognito. Um, but there was a lot of people, thousands of people. It was at Wembley Arena, um, their venue in London, and only half of the venue was in use. It was kind of cordoned off, but he sold a lot of tickets, I think. And it seemed like a lot of people were on board. Then in Act 2, people weren't cheering so much when he was talking about the lizards and stuff. I mean, people were a bit dubious about that. But in Act 3, when he's saying we can overcome this, and people were back on board. People seemed to really respond to that. And so I thought, you know, you've got this seemingly wacky conspiracy theory about lizards and like, everything is part of the conspiracy. How could anybody believe that? Well, I'm not sure that people do. Even the people who pay for tickets to see David Icke, I'm not sure they believe everything he says, but I think it's an appealing message when he says there's this bad stuff going on, but we have the power to overcome it. I that's an interesting thing because I've seen that with 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 the QAnon people, and I I always thought QAnon, and I'm sorry to have this on my mind so much, but I always thought it was just a really dark worldview where you know these people see these deep state satanic child pedophile sex traffickers running around and say what a dark place to live, but. You talk to some of these people, and they have this great hope that's sort of um, on the back end of that, where they say, you know, uh, Q and Trump are going to solve this problem, they're going to take down all the evil people, and society's going to have this great awakening, is what they call it, um, where, where we're going to come out into this new light, and we'll all know the truth, and we'll live in 
you know, happiness and harmony. Um, so there's something very hopeful there, even though the, the, the view of our current reality is just so, so dark and perverse, almost. Yeah, um, it seems like like a kind of paradoxically reassuring worldview, because even though you're saying there are bad people who are out to get us, in the same breath, you're kind of saying or implying that we can do something about it. And it's quite an easy solution, you know, basically all you have to do is realize the truth of that and, you know, spread the word, and then the cover-up will, will end, you know, we'll succeed, we'll expose the truth, and everything will be fine. So when you were watching David Icke do his lizard people talk, um, you know, they seem to, you're, you're saying they seem to respond less to the lizard part and more to the more general conspiracy theorizing. Do you think there's, you know, for our young people out there who want to grow up to be successful conspiracy theorists, I mean, is that sort of the message you can pull people in if you just use general enough conspiracy theories um, and not get too specific with the more outlandish stuff? Yeah, I think so. I mean... QAnon kind of succeeds on that basis. David Ike, oh, you know, David, he gets very specific about a lot of things, <laughs> in a way. But, um, yeah, you put out enough information, enough claims, and basically I think you're providing something for everyone, you know? Whether they respond to the lizards or just the kind of 9-11 stuff, the relatively mild stuff, there's something for everyone, and there's hope. So, so let me ask you. So, right now in the U.S., we're spending a lot of time talking about the internet, and should should these ideas be banned? Um, do you have any concerns about about this stuff floating around on the internet? Is there anything you think that that should be taken down, or um, you know, I, I I don't think we'd go to censorship per se, but I mean, are there some ideas that the tech companies should be on the lookout for and just taking taking off the internet? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think this is an increasingly important issue, and I don't have the answers. It's a, it's a tricky thing, because on the one hand, you know, clearly hate speech, incitements to violence, and things like that, they probably aren't okay. But I think, for the most part, people who engage with conspiracy theories, they're not going to that extent. There is this tendency to focus on the most extreme examples, like, you know, David Icke and his lizards, or the QAnon people, and, you know, the even more disturbing examples of conspiracy theorists who have carried out atrocities, who have perpetrated violence, like Timothy McVeigh, you know, who blew up a government building because he thought the government was conspiring to take away people's guns. But those are the most extreme examples and they're mercifully rare. You know, a lot of people believe, or say they believe, or entertain conspiracy theories of one kind or another. Um, like there was a poll, I think in the mid-2000s, around 2006, about the 9-11 conspiracy theories. And it asked a few different varieties of the question. It asked something like, do you think the government knew in advance about the attacks and allowed them to happen? And something like a quarter of people agreed with that. Which in itself is quite high, surprisingly high, but it also asked a more general question, which was just something like, do you think we're not being told the whole truth about the 9-11 attacks? And something like half of people agreed with that. So depending on the, the extremity of how you pose the conspiracy theory, most people, a lot of people, certainly are going to be receptive to it. And the vast majority of those people are not perpetrating violence they're not causing those kind of problems so what do you think and this might be a stretch i'm not sure anyone has the answer for this yet but what do you think people um what do you think drives these conspiracy theorists to go and and, and commit violence it's a small few um but it's something that we're very much on the lookout for now yeah i mean the people who are that committed to that worldview or that committed to a specific conspiracist belief it you can see the logic of why they might think they need to take action against it if you genuinely believe that the government is out to harm you in a in an active direct kind of a sense then you can see the logic of 
of self-defense. And obviously that's not to excuse in any way that kind of behavior is not to say it's justified um, in specific cases, but you can see the logic. And again, this is extremely rare. Uh, I'm not even sure that that could be seen in the same light as conspiracy theories as I study them. Mm. But from my research, we focus on the general public, on you know the broad swath of the general public. And this includes the people who are kind of fairly committed to conspiracy theories, but also the people who are pretty much on the fence and the people who disbelieve them. You know, it's an interesting question in itself why some people reject conspiracy theories so fervently, even though there are occasionally conspiracies in the world. Um, and so that's what I focus on, is the general public. And in general, I think people are not um, not that committed to the worldview that they're, that they're going to follow that logic and feel like they have to take action. Yeah, and it, yeah, that's obviously a very good thing. I mean, right now, I think we have about 60% of the U.S. buys into one form of the JFK assassination conspiracy theory or another. So, I, you know, obviously we don't have 60% of the country taking to the streets with torches and pitchforks to, you know, take vengeance on the real killers. Um, and good thing for that. But, you know, but the lone wolves do pop up. They are occasionally rare. What about something like anti-vaccination conspiracy theories? These seem to be um, rather sticky. I mean, we're talking about them a lot lately because there have been outbreaks of, of measles and mumps and whatnot, um, diseases that were once cured. Um, but you have these small pockets of people that get into these information bubbles and they act on it by not getting vaccinated. I mean, um, um, how do you view that? Yeah, sticky is a good way to put it. I think there have been anti-vaccine conspiracy theories basically since the first vaccine. Edward Jenner invented the vaccine for his smallpox around uh, 1799 or 1800 or thereabouts, and there are conspiracy theories almost immediately. Um, by about 1850 in Britain, there were many dedicated anti-vaccine groups. They were very active. They would organize protests and print up pamphlets and posters, and they had quite a strong following. And it uh, made its way over to the U.S. Of course, there are anti-vaccine groups here. And uh, it's been around for a long time. So it takes on different forms at different times with different focuses, like the current sort of focus on the MMR vaccine and ingredients like thimerosal. That kind of arose in the 80s and particularly the 90s when Andrew Wakefield published this uh, study that was subsequently revealed to be fraudulent. Uh, alleging that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. But it seems to be this underlying wariness of vaccines. It seems to be um, something that's been around as long as there have been vaccines. Yeah, not me. I mean, I'm so worried about getting sick. I get, I'll get i get three flu vaccines a year. Um, I don't even shake, shake people's hands because I don't, I don't want to catch it. <laughs> and that's funny yeah, because... I, because I used to believe that the, you know, I was a X-Files watcher, so I thought they were going to stick me with the flu vaccine and I would get alien DNA or something. And then I wisened up after I got the flu and I'm like, I don't want this again. <laughs> yeah, and there's a spectrum again. You know, some people are pretty committed to opposing vaccines, pretty sure that there's something suspect about them. Some people, not at all. Most people probably are somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the vicinity of unsure so one thing you say in the book is we're all conspiracy theorists some of just some of us just hide it better than others is that a conspiracy in and of itself <laughs> well uh, I started the book with this sort of tongue-in-cheek conspiracy theory about being controlled by these invisible puppet masters and then I reveal that it's our brain it's our synapses this wet matter inside our skull the kind of dictates our entire view of reality. It's the ultimate conspirator, because it's controlling how you view the world. I think that's true, you know, I stand by that. Uh, we have these biases, they're constantly running in the background. Again, they're useful in some situations, particularly in our evolutionary history, they probably helped us be a little bit more successful in surviving and reproducing. They're probably less well-suited for the 
for the modern world with this proliferation of information and, and things happening in the world. Um, but we all have them running in the background. A lot of the times we'll override them and we'll tell ourselves it's probably not a conspiracy, it was probably just an accident. But depending on your personality and depending on the broader political or historical context and depending on what the media is telling you, um, you might be more or less receptive to any given conspiracy theory. I think we all have that lurking in the background, this little conspiracy theory hiding inside us, just waiting for a chance to spot a conspiracy. So let me ask you a, a, a question, not about the psychology, but about the events that sort of spark these theories. So um, planes go down once in a while. It's a rare event. Um, in comparison to the number of flights that are out there, but flights will go down once in a while. Some flights get a lot of conspiracy theories trying to explain them, and other ones don't. Just like somebody gets assassinated and there'll be conspiracy theories that go on forever, and then another assassination, nobody will blink an eye. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's it's so picky and choosy? Yeah, there's a lot of different factors influencing this, and I think it depends um, very much on the media here as well. The media plays quite a large role in the information that people see. And so to go back to QAnon, you know, before August of last year, this was on some people's radars, some people knew about QAnon, but hardly anybody really. Then after August, that those few days of that week or so when it got massive amounts of coverage, a lot more people have heard of it. And that's a lot more people who are just dismissing it, you know, not believing it, but maybe it's more people who are believing it as well. If the media hadn't covered that the way that they did, then it just wouldn't have been on people's radars in the same way. And so I think this is true of, of a lot of events like this. It just kind of depends on the whims of the news cycle and, and how one event resonates slightly more than another for you know, probably an infinite number of reasons. But it's hard to predict in advance what exactly is going to garner the most successful conspiracy theories. So do you think education is sort of a good way to, to get people to, to understand their biases and then sort of try to see past them um, as they gather information and try to decide what they should and shouldn't believe? Yeah, I like to think so. Just evidence on critical thinking and, and learning about these biases just the very fact that they exist and that we all are more or less susceptible to them sometimes it can be it can make it a little bit easier to catch yourself when you're falling for those biases or at the very least it can make it easier to catch the people around you when they're falling for the biases it's still very hard to see it in yourself but you know if we were if we could all be a little bit more open to the idea that everybody is trying to understand the world using the tools available to them. And we're just going about it in slightly different ways. Some people falling for certain biases more than others, but you know, it's not necessarily in bad faith. Then we could maybe have a more productive discussion about why certain people believe exactly what they believe. And is it mainly about the evidence or is there a role of some bias here? You know, I like to think if everybody was a bit more aware of that and more open to it, then we could just have a more productive discussion. It might not change everybody's minds, but we could have uh, a better discussion in, in good faith, I like to think. So time is running down, but the, the book is Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. What, what, what drove you to write the book? Because I think this was one of the first books on the psychology um, of conspiracy theories. Um, what drove you to, to, to do this? Well, I've been working on it for a long time, really. I started studying the psychology of conspiracy theories when I was an undergrad. I was studying psychology uh, as an undergrad. I did a research project on conspiracy theories. And I'll be honest, when I got into it back then, I just thought it was kind of fun and interesting. I thought conspiracy theories were a bit weird and interesting and they'd be a good thing to spend my time thinking about. Um, but I kept researching them in my master's degree and PhD I just stuck with it because the more I thought about it, the more I researched it, the more I realized conspiracy theories, they're a useful thing to study for a couple of reasons. First of all, because they can be consequential. 
you know, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories can determine whether somebody vaccinates their kid and stuff like that. They can have real consequences. But more broadly, I think they're worth studying because it helps us understand how we see the world in general. Conspiracy theories are this kind of extreme manifestation of some of these biases. And so they're easy to spot when you don't believe the conspiracy theories. It's easy to see how they might have been shaped by these biases. But the biases are much broader, and they affect how we see the world in general, not just when it comes to conspiracy theories. So I think they're a useful thing to study, and um, that's why I wanted to write the book. I submitted the manuscript, incidentally, in uh, June of 2015, which was right before Donald Trump declared that he was running for uh, the Republican presidential nomination. And um, so I wonder sometimes, would the book have been very different if I'd been writing it a year or two later? And, um, well, I don't think so. I think the book stands up because it's about these underlying psychological phenomena, these biases that pervade our consciousness. And that's always going to be true. There have always been conspiracy theories, it seems, throughout history, and there always will be. Perhaps you did it to us. <laughs> well, perhaps. I can neither confirm nor deny. Well, uh, we are at the end of the, end of the program here. So um, do you have any contact information or any, anywhere that uh, people can get a hold of you and uh, pick up your book or read a blog or a uh, website? Yeah, people can go to conspiracypsychology.com. And um, that's a blog that I've run for a while with uh, myself and a few other colleagues who research conspiracy theories. And that has links to more information about my book and some extracts and stuff like that as well. Well, thank you. You're an excellent guest, and we really appreciate you uh, 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 giving us an hour of your time and, and trying to help us figure out uh, what we're doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.